Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with Don Finn. Don is a fascinating guy, I believe from the Bronx, now in sunny San Diego. And Don has done it all, but it's a fascinating story. And I kind of asked Don to come along. He's written so many books and I often get approached by authors, can I come on and talk about the book and so on? I just saw his story and I thought I'd love to have a chat. So Don, thank you very much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yeah. So there's a lot to cover, but The reason I asked you, Don, to have a chat was once upon a time, you built out an HR company, which you then sold on. And there's a lot that goes around with that. But also for people listening, you're a keynote speaker, advisor, mental fitness coach for executives. You've presented over 600 times and a good chunk of them, probably over two thirds of them have been to Vistage CEO groups, which I'll ask you about that in just a moment. But in other words, you're talking to the top end of town regularly, you understand their thing, but Beyond that, you're also educating a broader HR community and workforce community through your LinkedIn learning programs, which I believe have been viewed over a million times. So you've been doing so much, not to mention the book. So let's take a step back. Do you want to give me your perspective of how you got into this game and how you got into the world of HR? It's interesting. I had, when I was in New York, I was a messenger for a law firm in Manhattan for five summers. And so I got to be around lawyers and understand that that's one way to move out of the South Bronx. Most of my buddies as a kid wanted union jobs to get them out of the inner city. You get your job as a fireman, plumber, city worker. You can move to the suburbs that are growing so quickly and do the flight out of the city. And I realized that if I wanted to be somebody super special, I'd become my son a lawyer or my son a doctor. And so I always had this thought of being a lawyer in my head. And then I had my wild streak and got on uninvited to a couple of colleges and found myself on a tuna boat at 20 in San Diego, right? To straighten out. Some guys ended up in Navy, ended up on a tuna boat. So I did that for a year and it was fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. Really hard work, honest work, loved it. But then I decided I'd go back to school, get good grades and go to law school, which is what I did. And I also married very young and had kids right away, right? So employment law was just starting at that time before that in the United States was labor law, union law. Then the private sector law started kicking in. Everything was from sexual harassment, wrongful termination, all those types of things. And that was the beginning of my litigation career. And I found it really interesting. I was going to do personal injury work. But when I found the employment work, I was much more fascinated by that dynamic than broken bones. And so I came into the very beginning of employment law. I did some of the first glass ceiling cases and some of the first whistleblower cases. And at the end of my career, I was representing nuclear power plant whistleblowers for the last five years of my career. And that totally toasted me. My life was a John Grisham novel at that point. Really? I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It certainly killed the first marriage. I decided at 40, I didn't want to litigate anymore. I had never lost a case that took to trial, but they wouldn't let us take those whistleblower cases to trial. He just kept me on appeal for six years. My client said enough of this. And I said enough of this. And that's when I quit litigation. And at the same time, I read Tim Harris's four-hour work week. And I'm like, this is what I need at this point. I need to, you know, readjust my thinking around work. 
because part of the story, and I talk about this in my workshops, is the story about being a hero is your willingness to self-sacrifice. And man, I was willing to self-sacrifice, not just myself, but my family as well. And it caught up into that story. And I said, all right, this is not working. I need a new story. I like Tim Ferriss's story better. And so I decided I'd build a career not working more than 40 hours a week. So that's where a lot of it started. And I first started presenting a program called Lawsuit Free. It was a three-hour program for those Vista CEOs where I started speaking for them. I got a 4.9 out of five the first time I spoke. They said, you can speak for us anytime you want. And again, 450 times later, right? I started maybe the first HR mastermind group in the country, maybe any place. One of the head of HR from that CEO group that I spoke for said, would you be a chair if I bring some of the top CHROs in town? Would you chair that group? And I said, absolutely. So we had the head of Aluminum, Callaway Golf, and Qualcomm, and University of California, and some law firms, and other amazing companies. And I ran that for five years. So we met every month for five years. And if anybody's in HR, they should be in a group like that. And the learning that came out of that was phenomenal. And one of the first things I really went after was math. Because everybody says in HR they want to be strategic, but you can't yeah. be strategic without knowing math. And nobody gets into HR to know math. All right. So that's one of their big weak points, right? And it's something I really, really focus on. I speak to the CEOs. I teach them the math of HR in a way nobody's ever talked to them about it. So then the internet comes along, right? Here I am doing employee handbooks and audits and all that type of HR work. And the internet comes along and said, here's my opportunity to leverage this. So I started that, put that program on the internet called Law That Works. And as I continue to grow running that group, I realized there's a lot of HR tools that I create. I'll never forget, I had my big law conference table. Back then, I bought three-ring binders with stuff in it and floppy disks with stuff. And I printed it all out, laid it on a big table from the whole life cycle of the employee and said, what makes sense? What doesn't make sense? What needs to be eliminated? What needs to be added? And so through that process, I created a lot of tools and checklists that nobody created before. Yeah, I'm a big checklist fan. I think one way to drive to process, whether it's hiring or terminating, is checklists, right? So I started creating all these tools, put them online. Then, and here's a lot of your audience with something that's interesting. I realized that to stay on top of all the laws all the time is a full-time job. And so I licensed material from BNA, Bureau mm -hmm. of National Affairs, I think it's called, BNA, and I licensed their compliance materials and put it into my program, okay? So I created 24 training programs, you know, video training programs people could watch with quizzes and stuff like that. Created an online employee handbook maker, maybe the first person to do that. And I also had a hotline where people could call me and I was the one to handle all those calls. You know, I originally only had a couple of companies and then we had more companies. And then a very interesting thing happened to me. It was fortuitous as part of my speaking. I was speaking to a group of work comp brokers, workers' compensation insurance brokers. And the guy saw the program I put together. He goes, this would be a great value-added resource for our uh. brokers. <laughs> I'm like, me? Yeah, you're right, all right? And so right away, I went into, this is the beginning yeah. of the world of white labeling. 
And I created my program so that it could be white labeled for these brokers, yeah. meaning white label, if you're not familiar with that, it's you know, when you make it look like their website, not your website, right? So their color schemes, all that kind of good stuff. And then I started selling licenses in bulk of 25 or 100 licenses. And I just kept to those two numbers over the years. If people wanted more, at a certain point, they were incentivized to jump to the 100. And with those agencies, they will typically have between 80 and 120 clients, that type of size agency. So that's the world I was in. I never dealt with public size companies and never dealt with the Fortune 500 size companies. It was really more the entrepreneurial size company. And the vast majority of my users were between 25 and 250 employee range. And they had enough people to have enough problems and to be concerned about it finally, to want to do a handbook and all that. And then once you get to larger departments, yeah, they yeah. have different resources, right? Not that it wasn't used by some larger companies. A lot of people like my yeah. tool, but I didn't focus on that at all. I've got a few things I want to clarify, if I may. There's so much interesting stuff in this. So firstly, the Vistage CEO, I mean, can you, for someone who doesn't know that group, what is that group? So when I first started speaking for them, they were known as the Executive Committee Tech. And then when technology came along and said, we have to rebrand ourselves because yeah. people think we're a tech organization, right? And then they call themselves Vistage, which is a made up word for vision and stuff like that. And they are the world's largest CEO organization. I think there's around 10,000 CEOs in it, something like that all around the world. So I've spoken to them more than 450 times all throughout the United States and Canada. And how did you get that speaking gig in the first place? Because that's a juicy audience, i got to say. I was helping that organization tech internally. So the HR person had me do some consulting for them. And then they asked me to build that group. And then, you know, I said, I like to present for this group for your CEOs. And so that's where I started with Lawsuit Free. So you asked, though. You put the idea in their head. I knew what they did. Yes, I asked them. I said, you know, is anybody doing a compliance program for you? And they go, no. Because it was all fairly new at that point. So for the other stuff that you were talking about, you went you know, crazy hours, intense. Your life was a John Grisham novel for a while there. And and then you read a book, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And for people who haven't read that, it's about using data and systems and automations. And there are ways you can work smarter, not harder. In fact, have a life, an income, et cetera, based on four hours. There's lots of thinking that goes around that. But also you were giving presentations. You were selling these training packages. And I remember those triple ring binder folders with the CDs or the discs in the back. And then along came the internet. You know, well, I can transition that to an online thing. And I remember the transition being at one point to USB drive, but that didn't look half as impressive as a folder. But it's just interesting the way you've evolved that over time and you've adapted with it. And then you built out lots of tools and techniques, including the employee handbook developer thing, which is just genius because every business needs to have that. So how have you, I guess the issue or the question I have is around pivoting and adjusting your offer. When did you know to change what you were offering and how did you work out what to change to? Well, it developed along with me and seeing what the needs are. So at first I was consulting, I quit litigation. You know, you can only do so many things with all you've been doing is mm. doing employment law for 17 years. You're not really wired to do a lot of other things, right? And so what I could do was audits. Mm -hmm. I could do compliance audits. And so I started doing those. I started creating employee handbooks because that was becoming a big deal. I started some early compliance training, sexual harassment training, and things like that. 
So that's where it started. And then when the internet literally came along at that point in time, it was when people were using the phones and it sounded like, you know what it sounded like. And that's when I got to leverage myself and house all this stuff instead of a book and a floppy disk and a CD or something, whatever came along next, right? And as I grew, I grew beyond just employment law. I was really pounding back then, understanding around HR there. I was a big fan of people like Peter Drucker mm. and Dr. Deming. So I really started understanding how, and I've been a voracious reader. I've read a book <laughs> a week for over 30 years, 40 years now. Something like that. So I really pounded all the the literature around managing the workplace and started to just see things, yeah. you know, you connect the dots kind of thing. And that's when I started creating unique tools. I'll give you a simple example. When I started, I laid all those tools out on my big desk, you know, from hiring to termination. At the end, yeah. there was an exit interview. Then people started doing stay interviews. And I said, just out of curiosity, and I started looking, I said, has anybody ever created an entrance interview form? Nobody ever had. Nice. Like as an onboarding. And on entrance, you know, right when you hire, it's all the stuff's free on my site. I can show where it is. Once you find out why somebody decided to come to work for you in the first place. Now that they're not trying to charm you with the job interview. Right. It's why did you decide to work for us? And then you know how to go, what's attracting people to you? And you know how to go back to the marketplace. Otherwise, you're assuming what's attracting people to you instead of getting some data around that fresh data, not a few days later yeah. till they figure yeah. out what they should say. So that's just one yeah. example of many examples. I've created a minimum of a dozen forms that I've never <laughs> seen used anywhere else. Now they are, but one still nobody uses, and I think it's the biggest mistake. My clients used to use it. I did a compliance survey, and I would actually have people ask on a quarterly or semi-annual basis, do you understand the laws? Yes or no? You understand that you can complain. Yes, no, I want to remove those policies. Are you dealing with a problem? And I don't know why we don't go at problems. We wait to problems to come to us. My clients who sent out that form never got sued again. And yet everybody's like, oh, I can't send that. I'm like, okay. On there, I talk about ethics and law. I said, if there are any ethical or legal violations, are you subject to any of them? Yes or no? Because that's how you get to the front end of stuff. My thinking is really moving front end, front end, front end, front end. And it was interesting that there is some resistance to using that tool. Oh, we don't want to create problems. <laughs> okay, that's really stupid, but okay. Yeah. That's just one example. I'm a tool maker. I'm an HR tool maker. I've been very good at it. In fact, what ended up happening is I decided, as I mentioned, I didn't want to work more than 40 hours a week. I didn't want to have more than five employees. And that's the business I built. And that's what I did. And I ran that for 12 straight years. So here's a curly question, because you said you developed a HR line, a phone line, right? Yes, a hotline. Hotline, yeah. I was actually on one of those in my final year of college, and wow, that was a government thing, but you could get every question under the sun. It was actually great fun. But you started out, you got a client, and you got a few more. How many clients did you end up with at once? I had a total of 3,500 clients, primarily through 80 insurance brokerages. To me, that sounds Utterly mad. That's incredible. 3,500. How many people were answering the calls? Me. <laughs> and what would happen is if I was on vacation, I would just forward a phone line. I also worked with a network of boutique law firms called Work Law. And when I had a question that was benefits oriented, I referred to their attorney, a benefits attorney. Or if I had something that was in Virginia, I'd refer to the attorney in Virginia. 
And so they love the work. I got them work. I got them you know, attention. Nice. They did some programs with me, did some of the very first webinars, and I turned those into podcasts when that first came out, you know? And so when that technology, I remember my go-to uh, meeting when that first came out. So Don, someone listening to this is going, whoa, whoa, whoa. He just said 3,500 people, one person answering calls. How does he do it? You know, you must be swamped. What's your answer to that? It's a little sneaky reality of the industry. The prevalence of it isn't yeah. all that much. The use of it isn't all that much. Some people, especially the way I had the program, okay? If an individual company I sell to, I sell for X. If I sell to a brokerage, I sell for in bulk, so I don't sell for it. Some of those companies will use those programs and some of them won't. In fact, I was the first one of the companies and I put pressure on ThinkHR. I actually opened up that box to the brokers and said, I'll show you who's using the program and who's not. And you know what? You ought to get on their case that they're not using a program from a risk management standpoint. That's why you've got it. So I forced my competitor opening up that box too, even showed how often they use the hotline, okay, and who used it. So if you have a program like that, you'll have a curve of some people who have the program and almost never use it. Then you have people have the program, use it with frequency, and then you got that curve there, you know. But I was able to manage that all by myself. In fact, that was a good source of a lot of me sharing with the community what's going on, things like that. Absolutely, because you're getting different times of the year or different issues are coming up. You're probably going to get more types of questions, queries coming in at once. And so you can notice those trends and share that kind of feedback back out. You answer a thousand questions a year. When you do that for 12 straight years, you answer a lot of questions. I love it. And so you sold a business. A lot of people running their own business would love to do that ultimately. Can you talk us through what happened there? What led to that moment where you thought, I'm going to move on from this and how you brought that about? Sure. Again, when you build a company, you have to make a really important decision. You have to decide if you're building a lifestyle business or building a business to sell, because that's the two different things, right? Now, my competitor, Pete Yazo, another New Yorker who started ThinkHR, I started with P&C, property and casualty brokers. He started with benefit brokers, and his goal was to get rich. So they pounded, 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 big sales teams and push, push, push. I was a whole salesperson. I, I was a sales force. I was the one that drove all the business. I was the one that spoke at the conferences, knew the brokers, things like that. They basically viewed me as an annoyance and basically bought me out. And they had bugged me a little bit. I had some other people bugged me, but I was living the life I wanted to live. I had no reason, but I eventually, I don't know if it's adult ADD or what, but I got bored of doing the same thing. And I really started loving the speaking and loving the training and the coaching. And I started doing and said, I'd rather just do that full time, sell the business. So I did that. One of the things that I faced, and this is just business, because I had it set, I wasn't sure. interested in growth. I was really interested in maintaining this beautiful thing I've got going here. And so when it came time to sell, my multiple was affected by the fact that I didn't have growth. And so without getting into the nitty gritty details of the sale, I got a two-year contract and worked with them for two years, commuting back and forth up to Silicon Valley from where I live. And I got some money on the initial sale but at that point, they were still all self-funded. And I got stock in them instead. And then they got a big SaaS-based loan. 
And I got some money from that. And then they got another round of financing. I got some money from that. And I probably have, at some point, they'll either exit or get acquired. And then I'll be finished with that acquisition. So it's taken longer to get all that money than I thought it would. But Think HR, which is now rebranded as Mineral, is not going anywhere. They're the beast in the United States, the largest compliance program that there is. You know, they've got, I forget the latest number, but it's hundreds of thousands of users on their program. They've got all the big brokerage houses in the United States. And so how did you feel when you signed that deal and walked away? Was it emotional? Was it, no, that's done? Well, look, you know, there's always seller's remorse and buyer's remorse. So I could have negotiated harder. I made the mistake of not having somebody negotiate the deal for me. Big lesson there. Okay. But I was just, I'm just a happy dude, you know, in general. And I was, you know, great. Somebody I can get to work with these people. And what I realized as soon as I got there, First thing they asked me to do, here I am trying to get out of the nitty gritty of compliance. They asked me to do a 50 state employee handbook. <laughs> you got to freaking kidding me, really? So I spent the first two months looking at every single law, employment law in every single state and creating an employee handbook. And that template is still basically wow. the template being used today with some tweaks to it, right? And then I helped them a little bit with stuff, but I realized they were way more interested in my clients than my knowledge because they were fast growth. As soon as they got their client, my client, because yeah. they had yeah. that client, it was more multiple attached to it than when I had it. So they made money right away by acquiring my stuff. And they were not interested in any of the HR strategic tools that I created. So where do they go? They said, we don't want that stuff. They just wanted the compliance stuff in the clients. And so I've been using those tools. A lot of them are on my website to this day. I just give them away. I, wrap them into my workshops. Just go to my website. You'll see this tool and that tool. Nobody has to register to get them. I'm sure you kind of saw a little bit of what I put up there. All my books are up there. I want to ask about the book in a moment, but just quickly, you also mentioned earlier about white labeling. Was it software or no, no, it was white labeling labor law. Uh, I white labeled the websites for the insurance brokers. Okay. So instead of trying to sell to one company at a time, one of the biggest thing I learned, yeah. the same thing with Pete Yaza learned, is leveraging yourself. Instead of dealing with one company at a time, find a triangular relationship. It happened because I went to this, I spoke for this work comp group, and at the same time, I was going to these marketing events with a guy named Jay Abraham. And he was always talking about the triangle yeah, yeah, relationship. Yeah. Find somebody to help you sell your stuff, right? Yes. And so I found the insurance brokers, and I was their value added. And I white labeled my program to make it match their website. And I sold in bulks of 25 or 100 to those brokers. And so I went from selling one license to one company to 25 to 100 licenses to one company, you know, and that's where the leverage came in. And then I was the guy at PNC conferences because I knew employment law that was very helpful to everybody at those conferences. There's always a challenge. They handle work comp, but in the United States, you always have disability law and family medical leave law. We call it the Bermuda Triangle. So I was speaking on that for the brokers all the time. Yeah. So for people listening to this, you might hear white labeling and think it's some fancy concept. It's just finding something and then either just putting your branding, your labeling over it and then offering that as an additional service or adding extra value through your consulting service. So a lot of the HR tech firms, HR software firms, they might ask you to be a referral partner or something like that, but you can also go to the extra step of white labeling stuff and calling it your own. You then have to service it and look after it, but it's available across every field, including personal health. Like there's vitamins that people white label as their own brand. If they're a gym instructor, 
but you can get that with labor law, training stuff, recruitment guides, all kinds. So there's just so many opportunities out there. So yeah, Don, you shared an amazing tip there for people to scale up the business. It's not just in terms of revenue, but opening up whole new business lines and access to new sort of markets almost. Is that right? Yeah. What it also was time savers. So here I am dealing with the compliance laws of 50 states. Now I could spend all freaking day dealing with that, or I could simply license that material mm. from somebody else, which I did. BNA is a large compliance publisher. And it was not nearly as expensive because for them, it's just, you're not taking any business away from us. It just added revenue for us. And it's not all that expensive. And again, these programs, the utilization of them is people don't use them proactively is the reality of it. They don't use these programs proactively. They use them reactively. And so the utilization is much less than you would hope for. And in hindsight, it became a sort of blessing. You know, at first I was really concerned people aren't using it, using it, using it, using it. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm building this company and putting less pressure on myself. Let them use it how they want to. Last couple of questions, the 40-40 solution, mastering the emotional energy of leadership and sales. It's a fascinating area. Can you explain a bit what it's about? It's my favorite thing to talk about at this point. A lot of this stuff comes out of my own deep dives. As I've mentioned to you, I've read a book a week for over 30 years. And a lot of it's to know myself better and be a better person and all those types of things. And years ago, I ran across a woman named Loy Young, who was the polar opposite of me, New York type A. She was a Southern California new age woman, right? And I needed to learn from her because I was all about running as hard as you could possibly run that New York in me, go, 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 go. Sure. As I mentioned, it killed the first marriage that, you know, working 70 hours a week nonsense. Then I met Loy and she introduced me to the drama triangle, the victim, villain, hero thing. And we wrote a book about that and then this idea about energy. And then in my way, I saw that she was onto something, but she didn't have a foundation behind it. So I did a deep dive to understanding physics and energy better mm -hmm. for three years until kind of my head hurt from that reading after a while. So it's really about two things. Number one, what story we put ourselves in. So we're either playing victim, villain, or hero roles, uh, play all three in the same day. You know, one of the things I realized about the hero role is this whole thing of self-sacrifice. And I remember Joseph Campbell's a Hero with a Thousand Faces. And at the end of it, it's all about the mythology of the hero, all self-sacrificial, die by the sword. And at the end of the book, it tells the reader, you know, that self-sacrifice <laughs> stuff is just mythology. It does not have to be your life. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. How come nobody ever told me this before? Because I wore that self-sacrifice as a badge of honor. As I mentioned, I put my family through that self-sacrifice. Because how you manage your time impacts so many other people. And so I was managing my time in this hero story, self-sacrifice, not coming home for dinners, all that kind of nonsense. And I'm reading like, you don't have to self-sacrifice to be a hero? What? And at the same sure. time, I meet Lloyd. So all these things came together. And I realized that I didn't want to play victim games. I realized that with my strong energy, it can be interpreted as being villainous, even if I'm trying to be a good person. So I learned a lot around the drama triangle, and then I learned the energy behind those roles. So the victim role is what I'll call a weak energy role. We call it a 20 percenter energy. Nobody plays victim with strong energy. The villain and the hero roles are 80 percent energy roles, strong energy. Nobody plays villain and hero with weak energy, right? And so I actually will have in workshops people physically go to lineups and feel what this is, feels like, right? To be an 80-20, to be an 80-80, 80, 
to be. And then anybody says 50-50 is fair, I go, all right, now we'll stand toe-to-toe at 50-50, tell me how it feels, like too close. Good, back up to what feels right. Everybody goes arm's length. That space is the 40-40. And the thing to understand is that 40-40, only at 40-40 can we both be heroes in a relationship. As opposed to a winner and a loser in that situation, the villain. Right, or as opposed to a hero and a victim and codependency. And the room in the middle is the room for the dance and the dialogue and the co-creativity. 40-40 is a metaphor, but if we don't get to that place, you're just pounding against each other or you're driving somebody away or you're both people are victims. The only place stuff really works well is at 40-40. And the, the CEO groups love this because here you are, 15 really headstrong people and the good groups have learned to work with each other like that. And if sure. they don't play at 40-40, their group doesn't last. The job of that chair of that group is to get them to play 40-40. Because if one person puts all the energy out, it gets nothing back, they feel like they get shortchanged. Somebody just takes and doesn't give, you know, shortchanged. So you've got to have this balance. Yeah. That's actually interesting with the whole move to hybrid remote work that there's talk that maybe the middle management supervisory layers are in trouble because what do they do? Just keep an eye on people and keep things moving. But if they're not physically in the same place, then a different management style is required and a 40-40 balance probably is more suited to the new way of work. So it's good timing. Look, the biggest change and the hardest thing for all of us, not just managers, CEOs, Mm. me, dads, parents, is the death of control. Control is dead. People don't realize the number one aspect of work when, say, our grandfathers, we'll take it to that extreme. When our grandfathers went to work, we do what I tell you to do. Don't think for yourself. We'll grade you on a scale of one to five. You live to your 65, we give you a pension. You can live off to your 67, right? That was the whole deal, control-based. Now the catch-22 is the person you can't control. You don't want working for you because they're not going to do anything unless you're controlling them. And that's exhausting. That's a parent game. How controlled do you want to be as a parent, you know? No? They've gone from calling them helicopter parents to bulldozer parents now. It's a new term, you know? So that coming down to the 40% was really an awareness and has been very helpful to me over the years. And I teach it and everybody else, like, nobody's ever taught us anything like this before. This is awesome. You know, it's a very unique concept, but nobody forgets it. And I get very high marks when I speak. And I speak at conferences and I teach people how to change their energy states I tell people nobody can play 80% or 20% like this, right? And so when at the end of conferences, I tell them seriousness is a disease and I'll pass out hundreds, sometimes thousands of red noses. You got everybody laughing their ass off with red noses on, taking selfies of themselves. They go, can you take yourself seriously with a red nose on? Good. If you're taking yourself too seriously, just look at your picture or put your damn nose on and change your state. So that's a fun part of doing the workshop. I love it. So if you're listening to this on the go audio, then yeah, Don has just donned a red nose. And I agree. It's very hard to be a villain or a hero in that status. Before I let you go, I mentioned earlier, you've had maybe a million views on LinkedIn learning programs and you've done transferable skills. You've got a new one coming along on building a skills-based organization. How did you get into offering, delivering LinkedIn learning programs? That's one of the advantages speaking to these CEOs. So building my company was built through insurance brokerages is where I played. Then I I had always been doing a little bit of CEO speaking, and I was originally set up the program to sell individual to those companies. But then I realized, no, I'm going to do the other thing. So I backed off of some of the CEO speaking and did more speaking to brokers and people like that, right, in conferences. 
Well, then when I sold the company, I came back to the CEO speaking because now I don't have a leverage play anymore. It's me. And I was speaking in a place called Ojai, California. So Ojai is outside of Santa Barbara in the middle of the state in California. There's a group there. And the guy goes, Don, you're really good. You ought to meet my wife. I'm like, all right, well, who's your wife? Nice. Well, she's the head of learning and management training for LinkedIn Learning. And they had just acquired Linda, L-Y-N-D-A. It was a big technology training program. They wanted to use their platform and add the leadership and management training. So I met with her and she goes, what are these CEOs talking about? I said, everything, the buzzword is engagement right now. She goes, yeah, 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 engagement. So that's the first one I did. And because I'm a public speaker, I'm sharp with stuff like that, I do one take. I get through these programs. I'm a professional writer. So I write my scripts. They don't have to do much editing. I get in there. We don't have to take second takes. They're like, what else are we going to have you do, you know? And so the second one they had me do was performance management. And those two have been watched combined 600,000 times. Wow. Translated into five languages, six languages now. And we just refilmed them during COVID. Instead of going to their studios, we set up a studio here. And I've done a bunch of other ones around HRS systems, around other hiring to firing, those types of things. And now that studios are back open, so I'm really excited to go next week to Santa Barbara and film the skill-based organization, which is going to be a great opportunity for me and for a lot of the people who use that learning. That's excellent. So Don, if people want to learn more about you, what you offer and about the book as well, what should they do next? They just go to my website. It's just donfin.com, D-O-N-P-H-I-N.com. And on there, there's a free tools section and you'll see six, seven books I wrote, a ton of stuff, HR people, some online training I still have sitting out there. It can guide you to that on that site. I still have great HR, which I kind of walked away from a little bit. And so that's still somebody wants to look at all the tools on that. But now, right now, what I'm doing more than anything else is I'm getting on bigger stages with my speaking. It's finally time to do that. But you have to let people know about you. Most of the keynote stuff I've done is from those CEOs that I've spoken to. They might be on the board. They might be their company retreat, something like that. But now I want to proactively do more of that public speaking. So I've got to market myself and I continue the coaching and I love doing the coaching. And as long as LinkedIn training wants me to do some training with them, I will. That is fantastic. Well, you said you wanted to have a lifestyle business or manage your time, but you still managed to keep yourself pretty busy, but you seem to do it in a nice way, a way that suits you and keeps you happy. So I applaud you for that. And yeah, thank you for sharing it. I don't work more than I want to, and that's a big deal. And I still keep myself pretty well balanced. Don, thank you very much for your time. I've had a great chat with you. Thank you again. My pleasure, man. Have a great 2023, okay? Take care, buddy. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.